Welcome to Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan, and we are broadcasting live on February 13th from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. I want to thank very much the substitute hosts who filled in for me the last couple of weeks. Thanks to Tom Sherberger and Jason Marlowe. They filled in for me and put together great shows. So thank you to them. Today, we're going to hear the Florida Supreme Court oral arguments about a proposed constitutional amendment regarding abortion rights. If the state Supreme Court allows the issue on the ballot, it will be Amendment 4 this coming November. We're going to hear the full audio so you can decide for yourself which side's argument you agree with, arguments you agree with, and which side the Supreme Court's justices might favor. And I'd like to hear what you think. Probably the best way at first is the emailing us at dj at wmnf.org or texting 813-433-0885. I'll probably open the phone lines up at the end of the show if you'd like to call in and make a comment. So here's the first clip, and we're going to hear Florida's Senior Deputy Solicitor General Nathan A. Forrester. He's arguing against the amendment being on the ballot. The justices are going to ask him questions, and I'll let you know which one is asking, which justice is asking the questions. So before we hear from Forrester right now, we're going to hear Florida Supreme Court Chief Justice Carlos Muniz. You're listening to WMNF Tampa. Good morning and welcome to the Florida Supreme Court. Our first case today is advisory opinion to the Attorney General Ray limiting government interference with abortion number 2023-1392. Counsel. Good morning, Your Honors. As Chief Justice said, we are here on the Attorney General's petition for an advisory opinion concerning the proposed ballot initiative entitled Limit Government Interference with Abortion. Uh, my name is Nathan Forrester. I am representing the Attorney General. And with me is Matt Staver, representing Florida Voters Against Extremism, who will also speak in opposition to the amendment. I intend to use 12 of my 15 minutes for the, ma the main argument and th reserve three minutes for rebuttal. And Mr. Staver will speak for five minutes. The proposed amendment here should not be placed on the ballot because it is misleading in multiple respects. First, it is affirmatively misleading because it tells voters something about the amendment that is literally untrue. It promises that after the amendment, quote, no law shall prohibit, penalize, delay, or restrict abortion in either of two circumstances, before viability or when necessary to protect the patient's health. And in point of fact, federal law, the Partial Birth Abortion Ban Act, already does restrict abortion in both these circumstances and would continue to do so even if the amendment passes. Counsel, it sounds like you're describing it as a descriptive statement of these the world. These two questions are from Justice as opposed John Curiel. To a command in the Constitution. Congress shall make no law does not mean that as a descriptive state, Congress can't try to make a law, for example, that infringes on the right of free speech. Um, I wonder if, if we can establish early on what degree of knowledge we should attribute to the voter in understanding that obviously on passing the amendment, the amendment has some effect. It doesn't mean that just like that, all laws are, you know, that might touch on this are descriptively gone. It's a, it's a prospective statement of what the law will be after the change. Do you not agree with that? I 
I don't think I disagree, Your Honor. Um, the approach this court has taken has been to assume, I believe, that the language in the ballot summary is, in fact, descriptive about a state of the world. That seems to have been the approach that this court took in the adult use, first adult use of marijuana case, where the, the, the device there was that it used the word permits, suggesting that, as a universal matter, the use of marijuana up to a certain quantity floor would be permitted. And this court said that wasn't good enough. It, um, it didn't ascribe to voters in that case a, 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 an awareness of the federal system and necessarily an awareness of the Controlled Substances Act having a, a preemptive effect. Well, yeah, um, and your opponents in this case, I think, have done an admirable job, and I'd like to hear your response to their argument that that, that is distinguishable, right? This argument that when we were confronted with language that affirmatively permitted conduct that was, in fact, precluded by federal law, that's different from a facial challenge to a, a statement of what the law is. Actually, there, are, there is a federal law that would, you know, the Partial Birth Abortion Act, wouldn't cover the same universe, the whole entire universe of this field. And so that's a little different than saying what it permits. Or is there no distinction in your mind? I, I actually think the no law shall language is more of an affirmative declaration about the state of the world. It has this universal quality to it. The, the, the verb permits invites consideration of what the subject of permits is namely the amendment, that could lead a voter to understand we're talking there just about Florida law. No law shall, again, has this uh, universal connotation, I think, to, but, to but Justice but Charles Kennedy. It could possibly be understood that the Florida Constitution would limit the congressional power to pass a law, could it? I believe, again, this is, goes, goes to the answer I gave to Justice Coriel's question, that the, the approach this court has taken is to view these as descriptive promises about what's going on in the world. So it's effectively saying that there is no federal law that's going to get in your way as well. It's not necessarily saying Congress wouldn't have the power, but currently you, are, you would be free. And that seems to be a, a, a problem under the approach this court has taken. Could I ask you to address kind of a different, uh, a different question? Uh, what is your view of our role under 101-161 in reviewing the summary? Um, what exactly are we looking for when we're looking for an explanation of the chief purpose? I mean, that's our mandate. Uh, you know, what does that mean? Are we looking as to what the, does the summary describe what the amendment says? Or does the summary describe what the amendment does? Those are two different questions. Yeah. And which one would you do you think is the approach, either what we've done in the past or what you view as what we should do uh, when approaching that question? Yeah, I think it's the latter, is what the amendment does, not, not simply what it says. Uh, I believe this court has said time and again that the purpose of requiring the statement of the that the chief purpose, the explanatory statement of the chief purpose, is to communicate the material effects to the voter. So that speaks in terms of what the amendment actually does and not merely what it says. These three questions are from Chief Justice Carlos Munoz. Does the state have a position on whether uh, an unborn child at any stage of pregnancy is covered by 
um, Article 1, Section 2, the basic rights provision. And the reason I'm asking is we have a lot of precedent from the court saying that um, one of the things that a summary has to do is identify the effect of any proposal on other constitutional provisions. And it seems like it's kind of self-evident that the proposal gives people notice that it's going to affect legislative power. Um, but it seems like the issue of whether the unborn have any rights under Article One, Section 2, independently of whatever is a matter of grace the legislature might want to do, or as an exercise of legislative authority, it seems like this this proposal kind of assumes that the Constitution is currently silent on that issue. And, and if that assumption is wrong, then it seems like it might have implications for, for what we need to do here. Right. I, I, we, we just haven't taken a position on, on that, Your Honor. Do you think that we can decide this without ourselves having an understanding of what the current state of the Constitution is? I mean, it seems like a lot of a lot of our law here in this area is designed to make sure that the people are aware of what is the constitutional baseline against which they're supposed to consider a proposal. And I'm not sure that we, I mean, it's a t I think I consider it myself kind of a tough issue, and I'm very curious to hear what you say and what the other side says, but I'm not sure that we can really make a judgment as to how the people are informed about this through the not you know obviously there's a limited amount that the ballot summary can do and everything but if if sort of the bare minimum is that people need to be on notice as to what does the constitution do now and what are you proposing to change can we evaluate that without taking a position on whether the current constitution legally not morally or politically or whatever but legally speaks to this issue of uh, any kind of rights for the unborn under this Declaration of Rights provision. Yeah, I mean, I will confess to you, Your Honor, I haven't, this is not an argument that I had thought about, so I'm, I'm speaking a little bit off the cuff here, but I do, I do see the potential for that argument to be viable under the approach this court has taken in cases like Askew v. Firestone, where the, you had a, a ballot summary that was literally accurate reflecting what the amendment said but it failed to disclose an important background fact about the law which was in that case that the effect of the amendment there was actually going to be loosening rather than tightening the descriptions on, on, on lobbyists so that does seem like support for the argument you make it would require then taking a position on article one section two and you asked me whether we have one i I'm, i don't believe that we have formulated one on that but What's your opinion on what we should do? I mean, you know, it seems like, I mean, I've tried to read through all of our cases. We, we clearly haven't directly analyzed this issue, but the Constitution says what it says. The words mean what they mean. I, I'm not trying to announce any kind of, you know, my own view as to what they might mean. But, uh, you know, it certainly seems, you know, it talks about all natural persons are equal before the law and have inalienable rights. I don't know that I could kind of affirmatively say that the term, you know, natural person doesn't, as a matter of just sort of ordinary meaning, include the unborn. I mean, we certainly talk about the unborn that way. Um, so I'm just, I don't, I mean, I'm curious as to what your view is as to whether the court needs to 
have a view on that in order to be able to decide this case? I don't think you need to have a view on that because we think there are plenty of other sufficient grounds for deeming this uh, ballot initiative, this ballot summary here to be misleading. Um, it's an intriguing argument, and again, it's just not, that's not one that I have, have thought about before. Um, uh, I, I certainly wouldn't say it's beyond the purview of this court to take into consideration. These five questions are from uh, Justice Charles Kennedy. Let me, let me Kennedy. answer this. Uh, other than the single subject requirement, uh, does the Constitution itself place limitations on the substance of initiative uh, petitions or initiative amendments? Well, this court has said that there is an implicit accuracy requirement in Article 11, um, and that the that, that's about. Uh, have, have we primarily said that in the context of the summaries, correct? It informs the requirement that the but summary an accu be accuracy. Accurate. It's kind of a different question than what is contained in the substance of the amendment of a proposed amendment. Oh, I, if, if you're asking whether it's appropriate to review the substance of the amendment, substance of the amendment, I think this court has said clearly, though, that's not the purpose of the review at this stage. Uh, it, you're, you're reviewing whether it's misleading, whether it violates a single but, subject, but whether it violates a single When I read your brief, it, it sounds like you, you think that there are ef effective substantive limitations on what can be an amendment because in, in, in the proposed amendment because you basically assert if the words are ambiguous right. um, at least at some level um, then the, that cannot be proposed to the people. Is that correct? And, and if, if it is correct, where is that in the Constitution? Yes. Where, 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 is, where does the Constitution have such a limitation on the initiative process? It's, it's not precisely what we're saying. We are, we are saying that the ballot summary is misleading and that the, the mere fact that it tracks the language of the amendment is not sufficient to relieve it but, of the requirement. But how can a ballot summary be less ambiguous than the text it is summarizing? If it because it, but then it's got to take a, a position on issues that are are ambiguous. If the ballot summary carries forward the ambiguity without clarification, and the requirement in the in the statute, section 101.161, is to have an explanatory statement, if the ballot summary doesn't do that, then the, the ballot summary is misleading. That may have an upstream effect on what sponsors are able to propose in the sense that it may make it more more difficult to to compose text that adequately explains an ambiguous term and but that is their burden under is the what statute. you're arguing on that point equally applicable to amendments that are proposed by the legislature uh, i believe that is correct your honor okay. chief justice carlos i guess Marnese. the point of the questions though is i mean the summary cannot Legally, you know, the, the proposal, the, whatever the words are in the proposal, they mean what they mean. The summary can't sort of be a way to sort of dictate what the meaning of the language is. And so it seems, it seems like you're asking the summary to do something that it kind of legally can't do. Because, we, you know, the, whatever the sort of intended meaning of the sponsor might be or the intended application might be, I mean, that's, that might be a relevant consideration. But that doesn't define the meaning of the words. And so it seems like by you're asking, you're sort of 
inviting us to give a legal effect to the summary that's kind of inconsistent with the way we view the law in general. Well, I mean, I do believe, again, that the bio summary has to be an explanatory statement, so it does need to explicate in some fashion. I, I'm, I'm aware of at least one first DCA case that actually looked to the ballot summary to inform the meaning of the, um, the amendment itself, and I do think it would be at least persuasive evidence of how the, the, um, the language of the amendment itself was understood by voters at the time, the time of the framing. So I, um, I don't necessarily view what you're describing as a, as a, as a vice here. Chief Justice Carlos Muniz. You have, uh, you're into your rebuttal time, but you're, you're welcome to wrap up or. <laughs> okay. Well, Your Honor, for all the reasons I, I have said, we believe the, um, the ballot summary here is at least affirmatively misleading. I didn't really get to my argument as to why it is also misleading in other respects, but uh, for those reasons, we think it should be invalidated. Thank you. Thank you. That's Florida's Senior Deputy Solicitor General Nathan A. Forrester. He was arguing against an abortion rights amendment being on November's ballot. These were oral arguments that happened last week in the Florida Supreme Court. You're listening to Tuesday Cafe. We're broadcasting from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. I'm Sean Canan, and I'd like to hear what you think. Probably the best way at the beginning of the show here is to email us at DJ at WMNF.org. You can also text 813-433-0885. Later on in the show, if you want to call in at 813-239-9663, we can put you on hold until uh, the end of the hearing, the end of the oral arguments, and then we'll have you be the first person on the air to weigh in. So next, we're going to hear arguments by another opponent of the amendment going on the ballot. So this is Matt Staver. He's arguing against the abortion rights amendment in Florida. May it please the court. My name is Matt Staver. I represent uh, Liberty Council and Florida Voters Against Extremism. This amendment should not be approved because it violates the single subject rule. There's four words that doom this amendment. No law shall restrict. That is breathtakingly broad and it substantially disrupts the functions of all three branches of government. This amendment says no law shall restrict. In addition to the other prohibitions, Prohibit, prohibit, penalize, and delay. That means no law. That means no parental consent. That means no health. And well, the parental consent, there is an express carve-out for the portion of our Constitution that does that. Justice John Curiel with these two questions. That's fair. I guess here's, here's what I'm working through on this argument. Um, if I understand your position, you're saying this is a wolf, and a wolf it may be, but it seems like our job is to answer whether it is a wolf in sheep's clothing. That's all we get to do. And it seems to me that you may be right. This may be as sweeping as you say. It may be that it wipes away all regulation of abortion. It makes it so that, uh, I mean, the list of healthcare providers includes tattoo artists. Yes. It could be that a tattoo artist is involved in, in this. Or it could not, we don't know. I guess my point is, by coming in and telling us this is a wolf, we may find that very persuasive from the standpoint of whether or not to vote in favor of the amendment. But it seems to me like that's not the question before the court. The, court, the question before us is, 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 this, is this hiding a ball in some meaningful way? Or should we not say, you know, the voters can look at this and say, gee, that sounds really sweeping. Let's not approve this. Your Honor, I think the, this court and its precedents have strictly construed and applied the single subject rule. 
And two aspects of it is, does the particular amendment substantially alter the forms of government? In this case, it does, all three branches. And does it engage in log rolling? It does. And it's strictly construed when that happens. And it's a legal question, not a factual question. So it is clearly within this court's preview. Because what we have here is on the face of it, as a legal matter, it says no law shall restrict. That means nothing. I don't know how you have a law that doesn't restrict. Every law restricts something. Every regulation restricts something. But if you're right, and that's clear on the face of the proposal, what are we to do about it? Strike it down and not allow it because that cannot go on the ballot to substantially alter the functions, particularly of not just one, but of all three branches of government. This court has struck down amendments that were proposed that would substantially alter the function of one aspect of government, the legislature, for example, in terms of taxing or other kinds of revenue bonds and so forth. But this does all three. So the legislature cannot enact anything, nothing. No matter how egregious the situation, the legislature cannot remedy whatever bad situations or bad actors are taking place. Counsel, these two questions are by Justice Charles Kennedy. Now, that says no law shall be passed to restrain or abridge the liberty of speech or of the press. Now, if somehow we had, that had been omitted, and we were faced with an initiative to add such language, it sounds like to me your argument would be to say that we'd have to strike that too. Yeah, well, there's four ways. How is that substantially different? Because there's four ways to amend the Constitution, and Section 3 of Article 11 is the only one that has the single subject. The other three ways, the convention, the... But you're saying that if that were actually up in an initiative, we didn't have it in the Constitution, and it was proposed in an initiative, we would have to strike it under the principles you're articulating. I'm saying that that would be a very close call, and because that drastic language here, but here it's not just this, it's no law shall restrict, penalize, prohibit, or delay. Those are all four different kinds of categories of restrictions, and it puts it all together in one. So it not only disables the legislature, but the executive with the Agency for Healthcare Administration, they can't do any remedy or regulation with regards to medical practitioners or licensing. And this court is only going to have one option, and that is to strike down a law, because every law that comes before it is restricted. Well, I mean, I don't understand why... These two questions by Chief Justice Carlos Munoz. ...given your position on this stuff, that that would be the legal effect of the amendment. I mean, these guys are going to be dusting off their, you know, Thayer articles about, you know, it has to be irreconcilable and all that stuff. I mean, there's going to be, this will be, if this were to become part of the Constitution, it will be litigated, you know, forever. But let me ask you, if the principle that you would be asking us to establish, what effect would that have if someone were to come forward and propose an amendment on the other side that said, you know, no law shall, you know, fail to guarantee the rights of, you know, unborn children to life or something? I mean, would that, is that something that would be off the table from an initiative perspective, too? Well, I think in answer to your earlier question, I think the article that you mentioned actually is something that is of a concern, because in addition to not my argument, but the previous argument is the voter needs to be apprised of, does this amendment affect other constitutional provisions? And whether this court has ruled on it or not, at least in the ballot summary, the amendment should apprise the voter of the breadth of this particular law or this particular amendment. 
and the implications that it has for other existing constitutional provisions, none of which are done in this amendment. Seventy-five words is what they had. They used 49. They could have done a lot more in that particular ballot summary than they did. But with regard to the... It would be very unusual the, for this court to punish a party for brevity. No, that's true. A briefs are no longer really briefs. But you can, I see you can my, have my 30, time You can have 30 count. seconds to finish. Uh, but I would say, Your Honor, that um, in this case, the breadth of those four words, prohibit, penalize, delay, and restrict, nothing with regards to abortion really disables all three branches of government. And those cases will come before this court. But when you read, no law shall restrict, and there's a law before you that has restricted prior to viability, it's going to be struck down. It's a total abolition of all the functions of those three branches of government with regards to the issue of abortion. For those reasons, we respectfully request that this court not approve it for the ballot. Thank you. That was Matt Staver arguing against an abortion rights amendment that's coming that could be coming on November's ballot in Florida. This is Tuesday Cafe. We're broadcasting from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. I'm Sean Canan, and I'd like to hear what you think. Probably the best way at first is to email us at dj at wmnf.org or text 813-433-0885. David writes in, he says, I think that abortion is a losing issue for Republicans. I think they're a bunch of hypocrites too, is what David says. Because David says, how many of these men have ordered abortions for their girlfriends and mistresses? And David concludes by saying, I hope that the Florida Supreme Court does the right thing and allows the abortion rights ballot initiative to actually be on the ballot. So we're going to hear next arguments by Courtney Brewer. She's the attorney for the group that's supporting the abortion rights initiative. It's, and her group is called Floridians Protecting Freedom. This is WMNF Tampa. May it please the court. I'm Courtney Brewer on behalf of the amendment sponsor, Floridians Protecting Freedom. The people of Florida's right to amend their constitution is fundamental to our state's democracy. Seeking to exercise that right, nearly a million Floridians and counting have made clear they want to vote on the amendment before this court. This amendment follows the directive given by the U.S. Supreme Court in Dobbs that the people should decide how their state may govern abortion. And in crafting the amendment title and summary, the sponsor followed the directives and guidance given by this court and the Constitution on the two issues before the court today. Counsel, I'm two questions sorry, I think from you're going to have Jane a lot of questions, so I want to get those started. Um, we have a line of cases uh, that said the summary must provide fair notice of the effects of the amendment. Sometimes we've said material effects, sometimes we've said legal effect, but it seems to be sort of if, if there's a major change to the status quo of of what has been sort of known or regulated before, that that is something the voter should be aware of. Um, how would you address that with, with these concerns? Because there, there are things that the amendment would change that are not addressed clearly. Um, and I think, you know, you could have multiple interpretations, but is there any, um, any responsibility? Do we need to look at that summary to see if it is describing those effects so that a reasonable voter understands what they're voting for? Your Honor, a reasonable voter has all the fair notice they need in this case because the language of the amendment is the same as the language in the summary for all practice. But we've, we've said several times parroting is not necessarily explanatory. Uh, that's true, Your Honor. You've also said many times that the the 
the analysis under the summary and title is easily met when the language is the same. In those instances where you have found uh, that it wasn't enough, such as the Askew case, there it was, the amendment was replacing uh, another provision of the Constitution and was constricting rights. And, and the court said, had it been a totally new provision, uh, the way the summary is presented would have been okay. Um, Justice Charles Kennedy. But well, wasn't the problem in Askew that the proposed amendment was in effect permitting something when it said it was prohibiting something? Yes, Your Honor. It was misleading. Uh, it, it misled as to the chief purpose of the amendment, which was to permit something that had therefore had before then been prohibited. And here, there is nothing misleading. They have the opponents have not identified anything misleading about this amendment. Hasn't the case law distinguished These between eight questions are from Justice Meredith Sasso. Defined terms. There would be a disconnect between the operative legal effect and then the voter's understanding. Would you agree that's a fair statement of the case law? I would agree, that, yes, Your Honor, I would agree that in people's property rights, I think, is, is the main case that the opponents point to on that. And so why, why is there not a disconnect here? Um, I think the sponsor's brief <coughs> reflects kind of a clear understanding of what viability means, of what patient's health means, um, and the significance of this comma. And so how do we expect the voters to understand the legal effect when there's, there's no explanation at all given as to a legal effect other than parroting? Because the words that are used are understood by voters in the context in which they are used, there is no question that voters understand what viability means in the abortion context. This is a term uh, and its meaning that have become a part of the cultural fabric of our nation. Voters discuss this Is term. it the sponsor's position that the voters would also understand that viability is limited by this last clause as determined by the patient's health care provider? Yes, Your Honor. It is the sponsor's position, absolutely, that how, voters how would... How would a voter understand the difference between application of a last antecedent clause and a series qualifier canon, just from reviewing the language as written? Because of, uh, well, two reasons, Your Honor. One, just grammatical rules that I think in our brief we point out that um, the 11th Circuit referred to these as ordinary rules of grammar. The Supreme Court just used it in the Facebook case. Um, but also because this is, the this is consistent with the way viability has always been determined. Viability has always been determined by health care though. Every, every law that's been passed in Florida has been a categorical ban at a certain week. And so why would it not be, why would it be unreasonable for a voter to read this language and say, I'll vote for it because the legislature will be able to, you know, have a ban at 21 weeks um, with exceptions for the health of the mother? Why would that be an unreasonable conclusion by a voter? It would be unreasonable because it would be inconsistent with the language of the amendment and uh, voters. That would be it, a surprise to a lot of voters, wouldn't it? <laughs> I disagree, Your Honor. I think that the voters are perfectly capable of reading this language and understanding it and would understand the ins and outs of it. And also, in Florida Education Association, this court said it's not what certain voters might believe. It's whether the amendment and the summary have given them fair notice of what and they're that's, voting And that's on. the issue, right, the legal effects. So there's, there's two scenarios. Either the words are undefined and it'll be played out later down the line, in which case the voters are not advised of that. Um, or this has a very clear meaning and the voters are not advised of the fact that this is going to shift policy making from the legislature to this expert class of doctors to determine the conditions under which people can end lives in Florida. And so I'm wondering why, if those are one of the two scenarios, then why neither of those 
are explained to the voters? It's explained to the voters because the language of the amendment is, is clear. The court has not required definitions before of terms that voters would understand in the context in which they are and made. And so I guess, does that, is that what your argument turns on then? So you're not really taking issue with the, the premise that we review ballot summaries for their legal effect. You're saying this does not fail under that con concept because these terms are so clear. I think I'm saying both. I, 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 am, I am saying that the terms are clear in context, that this court has never struck an amendment under these circumstances. And I'm also um, saying that, uh, you know, voters understand what is before them, that if a voter doesn't like uh, this amendment, they are perfectly capable of voting against it if they don't like. Uh, but voters have seen and, and, and deserve the chance to vote on and include in their constitution uh, what happens when these decisions are taken away from health care providers and put in the hands of politicians. And if, uh, again, if a voter does not want that, if they, they, they can vote against this amendment and uh, there will not be uh, this de determination left to the health care provider to determine when viability there's nothing though on the face of the amendment that if it were to become law that would say that the these eight questions are from chief justice carlos Muniz. a kind of generic definition of viability that a health care provider would then be the one to sort of decide whether factually in a particular case that's been met right there's nothing that changes the role of the legislature your honor to be sure um and let me ask you about this personhood issue because it seems like um I could think that everything that the that everything that the that the summary says in and of itself is okay, but then there's this issue of, you know, does our case law stand for the proposition that if you're going to substantially alter an existing part of the Constitution, it needs to be identified for the voter? I think there's lots of cases that say that. Then the question becomes, you know, does this essentially have the effect of changing article one section two and that's not something that's you know flagged for the voter at all what's your position on that well your honor i, I would i think the ag doesn't even have a position on whether that uh constitutional provision would apply in the circumstances in which you're suggesting uh if if this court had that argument before it that this amendment was passed and uh it was there was a conflict between it and article 1 section 2 uh, then this court can balance the different rights at that time but, but because I'm, and i don't mean to interrupt you but don't the voters need i mean the whole i think the logic of our the logic of our precedent in this area is that the voters are supposed to be the ones doing the balancing i mean this this proposed amendment is I'm not, when I say that it's kind of one-sided, I don't mean that it's one-sided in any kind of deceptive way, but it kind of assumes that the Constitution as it exists right now is silent as to, as to any rights of the unborn. And I don't know if, if that assumption is correct. And so I guess, I mean, maybe a more direct question for you would be, can we say as a matter of law that the term all natural persons excludes unborn children? I don't think that that is a question that would come before this court. No, I'm uh, asking right now, under right. the existing right. Constitution. I mean, this is the Constitution. We're looking at the words. We need to understand if this proposal would change that or, or affect it. You know, in Roe versus Wade, the majority opinion said that if the unborn are quote-unquote persons, then it kind of throws 
the entire analysis off. And I know academics have sort of questioned whether that was true. But, I mean, that, you know, the way this has been traditionally viewed is that if you really, if you view it as the rights of a, of the woman and the rights potentially even unborn, that kind of changes the equation if you're just comparing the rights of the woman to the sort of authority of the state and whatever interest they, they may want to pursue. So do you have any authority under Florida law that would allow us to say that natural persons does not include the unborn? I don't think there's any authority under Florida law to say that it does include the unborn. And so what you would be asking amendment sponsors to do is to think of all the ways that a constitutional, another provision of the Constitution might be interpreted and to somehow communicate that to the voters. Um, and you're losing, uh, I think in that instance, we would really lose the clarity that, uh, and, and the, and what the Constitution requires. A, a proposed amendment to say. Should it matter that for a hundred years, so this revision, this language is from 1968, should it matter that for a hundred years the law of Florida was that basically through the homicide laws and the abortion laws, I mean they can only be read sort of, sort of making sense if the unborn child is some kind of a person, whether it's you know legally, whether you have to treat born and unborn exactly the same that's kind of a separate issue but I'm just asking just sort of as a matter of language and is how we using all the tools in the toolbox for how we sure. interpret the meaning of sure. terms your honor I just I come back to it's it's not the question before this court we'd be weighing it I mean the if the sponsor had to include something like that in the um, amendment we'd be weighing into uh, an, an issue in the Constitution that hasn't even been fleshed out before this court and I would also note that the sponsors intent on how this would interact uh, is not determinative uh, to this court long term. Uh, J Chief Justice Muniz, you said in your dissent in all voters vote that a sponsor's stated interpretations of a proposed amendment cannot trump the plain meaning of the amendment's text. And so uh, what the amendment is that we have put that we hope to put before the voters, that we will put before the voters, uh, is entirely reflected by the ballot summary well, that, and the sorry. I was going to say that it's, it's quite right that the, the text trumps, but I, I wonder whether that helps when it comes to the collateral effects, like I, I to pick up on on a different thread of the argument here, is is it your position that the, a reasonable voter would understand that this does away with all existing regulation of uh, where an abortion can be performed, for example? Because the plain effect of the text, say your opponents say, I think you know could say a reasonable reader of this language is indeed quite sweeping and might have that effect. Your Honor, the plain language does not say anything about, uh, it does not limit the state in its ability to regulate health care. Oh, well, it, but it does. See, here I disagree with you. The, the plain text of the language says you can't delay an abortion. Well, causing someone to go to a licensed clinic might be a delay as opposed to, I don't know, using some abortifacient at home, right? Uh, there are, uh, allow me to rephrase then, Your Honor. There are... Of course, uh, regulation is uh, encompasses prohibitions. It encompasses penalizations, but it, those terms do not encompass all regulations that the state may uh, may impose. Uh, there is no contention that the neutrally 
neutral, generally applicable health and safety regulations are going to prohibit, penalize, delay, or restrict abortions and would not be prohibited by oh, this but, amendment. But, but we have, you know, maybe 50 years of abortion jurisprudence where so much of the fight was about delay or restrict when it was about, you know, regulation, right? So I'm not sure here I think your intent is peeking in in a way that you just said was not acceptable. Well, of course, it, it, if there was a regulation that was challenged as being a prohibition, delay, restriction, or uh, penalizing abortion, uh, it would be back before this court. It will be before this court to make that determination. And so what our intent is would not matter. Um, this court very well knows how to uh, analyze statutes uh, and, and analyze them under the framework of constitutional amendments. Uh, it would be a huge shift for this court to say that, you know, every regulation that might come under fire would need to be addressed uh, before the voters. It would effectively take away uh, the voters' right to amend their constitution, which is a sacrosanct right and part of our organic law in this state. Oh, so I'm sorry. Justice okay. Renatha Francis. Uh, let me, I, I want to ask this question. I want you to respond directly to the argument made by opponent uh, Susan B. Anthony when they say that essentially the chief purpose um, that is not communicated by um, the amendment, the proposed amendment, is that we would be enshrining in constitutional cement, I think is what they said, uh, abortion without restriction for the entire nine, month, nine months of pregnancy. And that is not being communicated to the voters um, in the way that the language of the, the ballot summary is, um, the summary and the, the, the amendment is drafted now. And that is important because abortion is different, right? According to, to Dobbs, it's a different issue. And it has divided uh, everyone according to, you know, their personal beliefs. So isn't that part of the, the job of the proposed amendment to make sure that they are communicating the chief purpose and the effect of what it is that this proposed amendment would actually do. Your Honor, I don't know how an amendment could better communicate the chief, its chief purpose via a summary than uh, by putting the language of the amendment in the summary. The, the voters will have that language in the ballot box with them. The, the whole purpose of the summary needing to be clear and, and unambiguous about the chief purpose is because often voters don't have that language in the ballot box with them. But here they will. And this court has said as long ago as uh, nearly 50 years ago in Smathers versus Smith that the summary should ni be neither no less nor more extensive than the amendment appears to be. And also in Detzner versus Anstead in 2018, that Florida law doesn't require that a summary do more than communicate what voters are being asked to approve or reject. And by putting the language of the amendment into the summary, that is accomplished here. And this court has repeatedly said that the summary and title provisions are easily satisfied. Justice John Curiel. So this is a wolf that comes as a wolf. I mean, the summary is pretty, if people think that this is sweeping, I mean, the summary makes it pretty obvious that it's sweeping. Yes, and if voters don't uh, uh, agree with that, they will have the opportunity to vote against it. Uh, but the arguments about what this amendment will do, uh, that's, that's not, uh, this is not the time and place for that. And, they, and they, those are arguments that the AGs may certainly make 
on the stump, but they are not arguments appropriate for this court's analysis right now about whether the summary clearly states the purpose. And if I may just briefly respond to the single subject argument, um, uh, this amendment deals with a single subject. It limits government interference with abortion. Uh, it just requires the government to comply with the Constitution, which the government knows how to do. Uh, it, Although it describes the types of government interference limited and in what circumstances they're limited, it's really this idea of two sides of the same coin, as this court has said in previous uh, cases on this. This court has emphasized repeatedly how reluctant it is to remove an amendment from the people's sanctified right of self-determination. It should not do so here, where the sponsor followed the framework established in other cases and the Constitution, using the same understandable language in the summary and the amendment and addressing only one subject. Instead, the people of Florida should be able to exercise their voice and vote on this amendment. Thank you. That's Courtney Brewer, the attorney for the group supporting the abortion rights ballot initiative. The group is Floridians Protecting Freedom. She was arguing in front of the Florida Supreme Court, and you heard the justices asking her questions. This is Tuesday Cafe. We're broadcasting from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. I'm Sean Canaan, and I'd like to hear what you think. Probably the best way is to email us, dj at wmnf.org, or text 813-433-0885. Next up, we're going to hear the last segment, the rebuttal by Florida's Senior Deputy Solicitor General Nathan Forrester. Remember, we heard from him at the beginning making the arguments against the amendment for the state. He is going to be here arguing again against an abortion rights amendment being on November's ballot. We're going to first hear from Supreme Court Chief Justice Carlos Muniz. You can you can have two minutes for rebuttal. Thank you. It's not enough simply to track the language of the amendment. The language of the amendment itself is of such elasticity that an enormously wide range of meanings will attach to it, and voters will not actually understand what they are voting for. Chief Justice Carlos Muniz. My problem with that whole argument, though, is it goes back to what Justice Kennedy was saying, which is you're essentially... Put it, you're, the only the only consequence if we were to adopt that kind of a reading of this is that it would have a it would dramatically change the substance of what could be proposed. I mean, all these things that are supposedly you know up in the air about this, which I agree are going to have to be worked out over time if this were to become part of the Constitution. I mean, there's no possible way that a summary could tick through all these different you know, all these different variables and possible implications and everything, you know, there, I mean, A, there's no clear answer to these questions. Well, it, and it, the it, summary says what it says. I mean, people can see for themselves if it's too broad or vague or whatever, indeterminate. Justice and, Charles and, and Kennedy. And if the summary engages in this interpretive enterprise, then the people who are opposed to it will be coming in and saying, no, that's not the, the correct interpretation. That's not what it says, and it's subject to other interpretations. It just seems like you, it imposes an impossible burden on uh, the people proposing an amendment. Um, and it seems like to me all these things have to be argued about in the political process. Um, and it's because otherwise it, it's, it is a restriction on the substance of what can be proposed. That is not in the we're, we're not given the power in the Constitution to impose such a restriction. Uh, I, I, I take your point, Justice Kennedy, but 
it doesn't seem a bad thing that if the effect of the ballot summary requirements is that the amendment itself must be more clear or else must be explained more clearly by the ballot summary that that's what the sponsors have to do because otherwise the voters don't know what they're voting for and that's the whole purpose of the, the basically the truth and packaging law that is section 101.161 you end up getting but, the, but Justice can, Charles do you Kennedy? think the legislature can impose a substantive requirement on what can be proposed in an amendment? Because it, 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 to, at the end of the day, that seems like what you're saying, is that we can, we can through that, uh, that requirement of general law, actually restrict uh, the substance of what is an amendment. Well, again, the, the sponsor would have two options. One is to explain. The other is to revise the amendment. Um, so it's not necessarily imposing a substantive limitation on what can be put in the amendment. Um, but the problem is that what you, what you have done here is you've created a Rorschach test of, court, of sorts where voters look at this language and they attach widely different meanings to it, but they may end up voting on the same side of the issue despite having sharply different views about what the amendment actually does, you end up with a, a literally inaccurate final count on the, on the ballot. And that is, that is the fundamental purpose of all, all these mechanisms that are laid out in the Constitution and by statute. Um, the constitutionality of Section 101.161 has, has been accepted, and that does in some sense constrain how, how ballot summaries are done. It, it, in um, the, Insofar as it has this indirect upstream effect on uh, how, how the amendment itself would be phrased, because that is one option for curing ambiguity. I just don't see how that could can be a bad thing. And as to the the, the wolf in I see I've already go, go ahead. The, the the wolf in sheep's clothing argument um, this gets back again to the, the voters need to know the effects of what's going on here. What I, I am hearing is that um, no, this amendment is actually very, very broad. It's unambiguously broad. I don't think the, the ballot summary adequately discloses that potentiality. Some voters may suss it out. Other voters will not. And the That's failure... That's not, I mean... Chief Justice the, Carlos Munoz. You know, prohibit, penalize, delay, restrict. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious that this is... Tri you know, there's going to be debates about... What are the gaps and what can the legislature do? But it's pretty obvious that this is, uh, you know, a pretty uh, aggressive, comprehensive approach to dealing with with this issue. And, and if it were to, you know, the voters can kind of argue about whether, you know, they want something more nuanced than that. I mean, it it just doesn't seem like this is really trying to be deceptive. I mean, I, as you as I've asked through my questions, I think there may be a problem with what it doesn't disclose. But I mean, it's pretty self-evidently broad. That being the case, um, I would say that the title of this is understated to the point of deception. Limit government interference. What you're talking about is that it unambiguously would eviscerate government interference with so abortion. What, what title would work? Justice Charles Kennedy? I, I, and that's not really your prohibit. obligation, but I'm just curious if you if you have an idea about what title would prohibit. Work. Pardon? Prohibit. Prohibit has a stronger connotation. I mean, I, it's not my job to obviously to do this the sponsor's work, but there are there are better words. Limit 
has a sense of not going as far as all the way. But I mean, you agree that we have gazillions of cases where we've said that you read the title together with the rest of the summary and I mean, you know, prohibit would obvious that would be a that would be a misstatement. Chief Justice Carlos of the, Muniz. Of the amendment. I mean, if you read the, all of it together, it's people the people of Florida aren't stupid. I mean, they can figure this out. I think there may be a problem as to what it doesn't say. Well, if, if the as determined by clause actually does modify all the terms that precede it, I'm not sure there are any limits, and prohibit might well be a more accurate description of what's going on. I'm not saying we're endorsing that as the, the, the best reading of this, but it's a potential reading. It's one that some voters may see, some voters may not. That confusion, that voter confusion, distorts the final outcome, and that's the, that's the fundamental problem we see here. Um, I. See, I've well exceeded my time. We helped so. you. <laughs> I'm sorry? We helped you exceed your time. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you, Your Honors. And again, for the reasons that we have laid, set forth, we submit that this court should strike this ballot initiative from the, from the November ballot. Thank you. Thank you very much. The court will take a, a quick break. Thanks. Well, that's Florida Supreme Court Chief Justice Carlos Munez wrapping up last week's oral argument. And right before him, we heard Florida's senior deputy solicitor general, Nathan A. Forrester, who was arguing against an abortion rights amendment being on November's ballot. One of the uh, quotes that's been uh, floating around since then is that quote right there at the end by the chief justice, the people of Florida aren't stupid, says the chief justice to the the uh, Florida's senior deputy solicitor general. And oh, some people are weighing in. The, Rick says the opponent's argument was weak, but they sounded like they have the court's ear. Love the attorney's answer. She was very strong. In my mind, she won the attacks the judges challenged her with. And Rick concludes by saying, we know this court is conservative packed. I hope they keep to law and this goes to the voters in November. So thanks for that comment, Rick. Also, Eric from Riverview says, it sounds like they want to keep it off the ballot because they know it's a popular position. Florida legislature has a habit of not implementing amendments that people vote for anyway. Eric says they care about children so much the state opted out of receiving federal funds to help low-income families. If the state doesn't want the government handout, then the surplus the state has should be used for their own program like that. Rick, Eric from Riverview concludes, we don't need more bonuses for first responders. So I want to thank everyone who weighed in today. And uh, thanks to our phone screener, John Dunn. You've been listening to Tuesday Cafe with Sean Canan. During this time slot tomorrow, Shelly Reback will host Midpoint. Next up is Wavemakers with Janet and Tom Sherberger. Their Wavemaker today is Nadine Smith, Executive Director of Equality Florida. I hope you support Tuesday Cafe and WMNF by making a donation at WMNF.org. Our spring fun drive begins a week from tomorrow. This is Tuesday Cafe on WMNF Tampa.